Hello and welcome to this clinical teaching podcast on presentation skills. My name is Kate Jurd and I'm the Medical Education Officer at Toowoomba Hospital and e-learning lead at the University of Queensland Rural Clinical School. I'm excited to be here doing my very first podcast and even more excited about today's guests who are held in high regard globally for their ability to engage and captivate audiences and inspire people to deliver better presentations. Please welcome Dr. Victoria Brazel and Dr. Ross Fisher. Before we launch into the interview, I will just provide a little background information about our guests. Victoria Brazel is an emergency physician and medical educator. She is Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Gold Coast Health Service and Director of Simulation at Bond University Faculty of Health Sciences Medicine. In February this year, Victoria received the prestigious Presidential Citation from the Society for Simulation in Healthcare, the singular talent as a medical educator, simulationist and debriefer who taught the world about tribalism in healthcare. I have been an unabashed fan of Vic for over 10 years and I admire her ability to genuinely engage and connect with any audience. Thank you, Kate. That's very generous of you. It's a great pleasure to be here, particularly with two of my favourite people and you and Ross. Oh, thank you. Ross Fisher is a consultant paediatrician surgeon at Sheffield Children's Hospital in the UK with special interests in oncological surgery and trauma management. He also has an avid interest in all aspects of medical education, including presentation skills. It is his passion for education that has led him to travel the globe to speak and run workshops on delivering effective presentations. He has spoken on the main stage at SMAC, presented at TEDx, and is a contributor with the teaching teams at St Emlyn's and the teaching course. He is the man behind the PQ presentation concept, which we will discuss shortly, and is the creator of an incredibly comprehensive presentation skills website. This website has had a huge impact on the way I now teach about presentation design. And his site is now my first go-to place to direct those who want to improve their presentation skills. Good morning. Good morning, Ross, and thank you. Pleasure. Okay, so we'll start with Ross. Ross, you are now one of the medical world's foremost authorities on presentation skills. Is presenting something that came naturally to you or was your own process of self-improvement part of what made you interested in teaching and sharing these skills? Uh, no, it's not natural. I don't think presentation skills are natural to anyone. I'm confused, humbled and amused to find that I'm a, a leading expert on this. I said this to various people. I think because I talk about it a lot, that makes me an expert, which I don't think necessarily follows. As to being an expert at presentation, I do lots of presentations, and I think that's the way towards expertise with reflection and encouragement, and uh, that's what has led me to be better at presentations than I used to be. So, no, I don't think they're intrinsic. Uh, I think often people use that as an excuse not to present or to present very poorly, but to encourage people, I think everyone can be a better presenter than they are, and many can be great with some help and encouragement and direction. Mm -hmm. So was there a resource that you came across during the early stages that has helped or guided you or had an impact on how you actually present now? Yes, the, uh, the book Presentation Zen by Gar Reynolds, I would say, has changed my life. 
I, I've got a, a blog post on my website about the, the journey that I took, the, the start of the journey that I took, that I was interested in a concept called Getting Things Done, which is an organizational concept. And reading a website called Lifehacker, they directed readers to a lecture given by a chap uh, whose name escapes me. It's on, I'll, I'll send you the link to the blog post, who gave a presentation in 2008, I think it was, that was incredible on a concept called Inbox Zero, which is getting very complex. But he credited Gar Reynolds for his presentation. And so I thought, that's incredible. That is so different to anything I've seen. I want to know more about this. So I went out and bought Gar's book. And reading it, it's beautifully simple, it's beautifully illustrated, and it's beautifully straightforward. As I think often these revolutionary changes are, you almost wonder why I didn't think that myself. And that was the start of my thinking. And certainly, uh, I would encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast to look out for that book. Go and buy it. Uh, it's uh, maybe 40 Australian dollars if I get my conversion right. Whenever I mention this in presentations that I do, I say to people, if you buy the book and don't like it, I'll buy it off you. It really is that good. Yes, Russ, I too have read the book and it has had an impact on the way I design for online and for presentations. It made me realise that there is a more simple way to represent information. So getting back to the question about your interest in sharing these skills, what was the main motivating factor that prompted you to teach others? I wanted to develop my own presentations. I wanted them to be better. Having read the book, I recognized that the presentations I was delivering as a clinician, we were often presenting, whether that's in small group teaching or larger groups or lectures or uh, scientific meetings, I recognized a lot of the failings or started to recognize the failings. And rather than just growl about that, I wanted to figure out why I didn't like those things. Mm. It's interesting, there's a, a scientific paper by Coslin that I quote quite often, where he reviews multiple PowerPoint presentations and asks audiences what the problem is with the PowerPoint. And most of them recognize that there are problems, but they don't know what the problems are. They just are disquieted by a presentation. And it was that sort of concept that I started to work through to figure out what was wrong and then to improve my own presentations. And on the basis of that, a good example, people would then start to say, wait a minute, that was different. Why are you doing this? And can you teach me to do that too? And so then I started to think about actually what I was doing and how to encourage people to do that differently. And that's where I started to work towards this P-cubed concept. At first, I think many of us just want to be better and we, we copy all the time. I see it in lots of bad habits that people copy from other presenters. And that encourages me that if we give good examples of presentation, then people will start to copy that too. And then once I started to have an understanding of how things might be better, I started to share that just locally with the trainees I was working with. And then it became a thing that was more than just a, a growling in the background that I started to, to write the blog. The blog site 
It's interesting how it came about. I was doing a master's in clinical leadership and our prof encouraged those on that course to write a blog, which I found very odd. But prof said anyone can have an idea, but if you can expand that into three paragraphs, then the idea will become more concrete and you'll have a better understanding of it. So I was meeting with a friend uh, to discuss how we could improve presentation skills in the hospital we were working at. And we came up with the idea of teaching and writing and blogging to try and expand our ideas. And that was where the blog post started. But I really didn't think that many people would read it. It was more for me to express myself to the forest. And if a blog post falls in the forest, does anyone hear it was my initial worry. But I think it was uh, social media particularly Twitter, that then started to share that idea slightly more widely. And this leads quite nicely into my next question about the P-Cube website. You say that every presentation is the product of its story, P1, the supportive media, P2, and the delivery, P3. Could you explain the development of the P-Cube concept? P-Cube concept. The example I use to people is that a presentation of any description is the product of its three parts. And so the story, the example I use is something like Romeo and Juliet, a story that stood the test mm -hmm. of time. P2 is the Royal Shakespeare Company, Stratford-on-Avon, the best lighting, the best props, the best staging. And P3 is the actors who strut their hour upon the stage. The value of a presentation is the product of those three parts. But... If you have Romeo and Juliet, the same story, you still have the Royal Shakespeare Company at Stratford-on-Avon, but a bunch of 11-year-olds who forget their lines, stab Juliet, come on from the wrong side, and just get all confused. The value of the presentation, because the P3 is poor, falls, except if you're their parents. And then the presentation is amazing. And so that was a real moment for me that recognizing the value of a presentation is not what the presenter thinks, but what the audience thinks. And it's their view of P1. How good is the story? What is this message? Is it memorable? Has it affected me? What was the supportive media like? Was it helpful or was it deeply distracting, annoying, uh, too much text? too much animation, too much prezi, whatever, and the delivery, because if the delivery is loud or if it's very quiet, then it spoils everything. And so the product of those three parts gives you the overall value of the presentation. And there are some people who are strong on a message and their supportive media is very, very poor, and yet their delivery carries it through. But conversely, there may be people who are great at delivering they're engaging in every way but at the end you think i took nothing from that because the story itself was so poor and i think once you start to look at it you can see that there are people who are affected by their supportive media so much that their well-known ability to communicate is significantly affected by the supportive media behind them such that the value of their presentation falls and then I extend the concept of that P cube thing to say that, sadly, for the majority of people, their P2, their supportive media, is their presentation. People say, oh, could you send me your presentation? What they mean is, can you send me your PowerPoint? And somehow the P2 is P cubed. And that's because 
P1, the story, is P2, the PowerPoint, is what you read out. So 1 times 1 times 1 equals 1. It can never be any better than the value of the PowerPoint. And because the PowerPoint, using the trade name, becomes so bad as people attempt to use the PowerPoint as the message, that's what limits their ability to deliver a good presentation. The more I've thought about this, it intrigues me that we believe that the delivery of a ton of data is some form of presentation or even some form of education. And that's where I'm intrigued that my thinking about this from the outside is starting to come into line with understanding of educational theory. That actually it's not about delivering data, it's about delivering a message. It's not about teaching, it's about learning. And those things have then started to influence my understanding of why presentations probably don't work, is that we cannot cope with a ton of data. It's not an effective way of sharing information, a big oral data download. And because of that, we turn off, so we pay less attention, and the data is not retained. Whereas, if you construct a presentation from the beginning with a message and thinking about the learning of the audience, then you will construct the P1 differently and you will illustrate that differently in the P2 and it will affect your delivery in the P3. Whereas if everything you want to say is crammed into your PowerPoint and it becomes your slides, your document, your handout, the so-called slidement, that's why it's limiting in the, the value of a presentation and that's principally why the audience turn off because we can't accept these two competing inputs of verbal and literal, and immediately the audience is lost to reading. I use uh, a really great video, The Hypnotized Chicken, in one of my, in my presentations, that we are unable to stop reading and therefore don't listen. And that's, I think, the, the big understanding for people coming to presentations is that we need to change the purpose of our presentation from reading out facts to giving people a message. If we go on to what are the most common mistakes presenters make in creating their presentations? The commonest mistake is not understanding the purpose of the presentation. Um, it's about constructing a slide you meant, thinking that the more information you have, the more information will be transferred, where the converse is true. And that uh, is why I believe people then construct their P2, their supportive media first, and then put in as much information as they can into that. Often people will say to me, well, if, if they're not listening to me, they can read it all, uh, which is just disastrous because actually they're better at reading it than they are at listening to you. There's often a retrofit of these ideas that people say, well, it's going to be my handout too. So it's those three things at once. It's a script, it's a handout, and it's something for the audience to read. And there's nothing that does three things perfectly like that. So the, it's a lack of understanding of what the presentation is for and what the slide set is for. People then will add in that it's their script. And of course it's their script. If it's there, they will read it. And if they read it, it becomes unemotional and immediately the audience will disengage. Where actually an audience will much prefer an honest speaker who stumbles and even some people suggest you make a mistake to make the audience like you. 
that the reality of an honest person speaking is of more value than someone reading something out verbatim. There are very, very few people in the world who can read something and emote mm. through it. They are on television using teleprompters and some but very few politicians. We much prefer an honest person speaking to us with a message rather than someone reading something out to us. So those, I think, are the commonest mistakes. Then you can get into presentation uh, delivery mistakes, which are usually tied to that, that because people are using a script, they will read the script. And the best place to read the script is from the screen. So they will turn to face the screen, which psychologically will bring the whole audience with them. And they will, then we will all read along together as though we're a bunch of seven-year-olds. And additionally, if you face the screen, you don't have to face the audience. So it, for some people, reduces their fear. And so we all end up, we could just be uh, online doing this, somebody reading it out, nobody in any emotional engagement and the information very poorly passed by text being read out rather than connecting with the audience. Yeah, actually, we've just got some feedback from our students. They've given information about our teaching programs and our lectures, and they have said similar things about the poorly designed or poorly presented didactic lecture. You know, there could be a hundred slides, and the presenter is actually reading out just the dot points from those slides, and then they quickly skip over a fair bit of it because they can't fit everything in that hour, and they're really disenchanted by the didactic lectures that we are providing. There's a colleague I worked with in uh, University College London by the name of James Moffat, who's a physiologist and teaches medical undergraduate medical students on physiology. And he had an interesting reflection that as he developed his presentation style away from the didactic lecturing to more interactive lecturing and more open discussion that the mature medical students, of which UCL has a small cohort, very much enjoyed this, where the less mature and basically much younger students did not enjoy this. And his point was that uh, there is an addiction that has been developed and we continue to feed of students believing that the only way for them to, quotes, learn, close quotes, is by having stuff read out to them, like a bunch of mm. five-year-olds. And so that we have to be a little careful in our new and exciting way of presenting that we address that issue of addiction um, so that some students will immediately be upset if there's nothing on the screen. They feel shortchanged. And literally, if they are paying for their education, there is a feeling that they should be given the material. So I try to make it clear that all the information that they need will be available as a download at the end and that all they need to do is listen to gain a better understanding so that my purpose is to share a message and not a massive download. And with that, you can usually see some relaxation. But as for all addictions, it's difficult in that first instance for people to give up what they're used to. Because if you think about it, someone of my age, this has been the whole of my medical education, the whole of the education I have delivered. And so it's a very, very big change. And additionally, when I suggest this to people and they recognize that a lot of teaching has therefore been in vain and value less, we are seriously criticizing what has gone in the past. And it can be very difficult to accept that, that 
you know, the last 20 times you have given this lecture, nothing has been retained and therefore it's been a waste of everybody's time. So sharing ideas and moving slowly forward rather than a massive leap, I think is important because it is a big difference to a technique of learning. But once my experience is once people understand that the information is there for them later and that they can then start to engage in learning rather than being taught, that's where I think the change starts to come. Well, I was quite surprised about how insightful these students were. The majority of them were saying that they're not getting anything out of this the didactic lecture, that they were looking for more interaction and they were asking if they could have some pre-reading to gain some bit of understanding before the lecture. So, you know, change may be happening. That's great. Certainly it's it's encouraging if people have that maturity about their learning. My experience is maybe our students are slightly younger, but our pre-med students really do struggle. And those of a more mature approach to learning value thinking about their learning. But if you've been taught this way for the last 30 years, it's very difficult to see change as being valuable in the first instance just because all you're noticing is the change but that yes. comes with time okay. move into the next question there is such a strong focus on medicine in evidence-based practice it's interesting that the same evidence-based approach hasn't been as widely adopted in the field of medical education what does the evidence tell us about how we learn and how do we change the practice of our colleagues who are stuck in their ways the evidence for education is clear. It's just that none of us read it because it's out with our field, I would say. The vast majority of clinical educators are not trained in education. They are simply clinicians, uh, without demeaning that in any way. Uh, and so we do what we've been shown and we copy other people in a way that we think is effective. The examples I share with people now is this fashion, because it is just a fashion, of tiny font references across the bottom of a slide. We didn't used to do that, and now everybody does it because they think it's effective. The evidence is clear that you cannot read, listen, and think at the same time. The cognitive load theory is clear that we can only do one thing at a time. The evidence is clear that text on a screen is distracting and reduces learning, whereas a blank screen assists in learning. In other words, there's less to focus on. And that addition of a simple image adds to that learning and makes it deeper. So all of these evidence-based approaches are there, but so few of us actually read the psychological and educational literature that we are unaware of it. Another good example is the concept of learning styles. People will say to me, oh, I need text on my slides because I'm a visual learner. Of course, that exposes them to the fact that the visual learning concept has been thrown out about 25 to 30 years ago from educational theory and probably only applies to 7 to 10 year olds, whereas adult learners are not, quote, visual, close quotes, or anything else. They are blended learners and have to be to have got to the point that they are at in medicine. Point. So the evidence is there. People don't read it because it's not in their sphere of learning. And most of us learn our skills by copying other people. And sadly, that's why we have learned to deliver PowerPoint as badly as we do. So do you think we should be 
spending a bit more time on teaching about learning theory with our clinician. When I do my presentation skills talk, my first section is on the science of fail, of why the way that we deliver presentations fails. Uh, that's my dog. So when I give my talk, I have a section on uh, the science of fail, of why the psychological science shows us why the way that we currently deliver presentations fails. I think going further down the avenue of educational theory has value, but most people don't actually want that. They just want to know uh, what the right way is to do things if that's the wrong way. There's a, a value in being an educationalist, but most clinicians just want to get on and say, well, if that doesn't work, show me a way that okay. does. And I've certainly found that of value that people will happily change when they see something works without understanding the practicalities and complexities of its exact mechanism. To be honest, none of us know how paracetamol works and we use it all the time. So it's not that we need to understand how things work to see their effect. If they're effective, people will take yeah. them on. We've just sent out a survey to our new registrars to see what type of teaching courses they'd like to attend. And quite a number of them have indicated their interest in education theory. So it would appear that there's a general interest in understanding more about the theory behind how people learn. I think that's true. And there's definitely a, a move in the UK as well for people to have a better understanding of education. The reality of presentations, though, is that everyone does presentations, whereas not everyone is interested in education. And so I think that's where there's a, a split between the two groups. Those who are interested in education certainly see the P-cubed approach through that filter and understand very well why the old methods don't work. But everyone delivers presentations and not everyone is interested in, in the educational approach to that. So I think that's why there's uh, a difference between the two groups. Kate, I'm going to just make a comment here. This is really about behaviour change. And I think just as our presentations are aiming to change behaviour, if we are aiming to change behaviour about presentations, we need to face up to the realities that people don't change behaviour just because there is a better way. They usually need to have a whole range of influences that help them do that. And we also know that from clinical practice, and I know Ross does too. And so the lag is that people generally need others around them who are doing the same thing. Just as Ross was saying, there needs to be that culture and expectations of this is how we do things now. And I think all of those are barriers to just simply saying, here's the learning theory. It's obvious you should change. And mm. I think people tend to need a lot more than that to change either clinical practice or presentation skills. I, I would totally agree with Vic. And I think the uh, maybe she's not as aware of it as I am, but the, the difference between emergency medicine and SMAC-type groupings of critical care emergency medicine presentations are just not even a world away. They are galaxies away from what the rest of us are experiencing. And it, I, I do wonder if emergency medicine physicians have forgotten just how bad the other conferences are. The, the SMAC-type approach of good message, good slides, and excellent delivery is impressively sweeping through emergency medicine so that whether it's the Royal College of Emergency Medicine or uh, the different conferences that I see on my uh, Twitter timeline are impressively moving towards a new and engaging form of teaching and yet 
Uh, this last week, I've seen some nightmarish stuff coming out from an intensive care conference that is more adult medical based, which is just the PowerPoint disaster that we're all used to. So that the, the influence within that group is clear and people are learning very quickly and copying their colleagues and aspiring to that level of greatness that in general surgery and pediatric surgery conferences, people are still aspiring to the level around them, which is mediocrity or worse. So that it's intriguing to see how different it is in those two groups and how amazing it is in emergency medicine, particularly that this new and enthusiastic approach to education is totally different to what I experience in general surgery, pediatric surgery and trauma surgery. I love how Ross got us into some sociology now. This is sort of classic tipping point theory, isn't it? And uh, as you say, there's a wonderful people, Roger, Ollie, Chris, who started Smack, and I think you're right, sometimes there's just a certain momentum that's generated and seeing is believing as well. Emergency medicine is is a great pioneer uh, in what they're doing. Um, How and why? doesn't really matter to me it is and uh, I direct people towards uh, blog posts and podcasts but my colleagues have never even heard of those words let alone listen to them regularly or read them very true now I've attended a smack conference and then I've attended an Amy conference and they're just you know miles apart so I agree with you that is an interesting thing your question about uh, Amy we had an interesting discussion with some of the St Emlyn's people about how Amy is supposed to be the pinnacle of education and understanding of the of the ways of presenting and yet the amy conference that i caught some of the the twitter stream of was just a perfect example of how badly people present and that's because that's the norm it's uh, it's disappointing but understandable i heard there was one pretty good keynote back in 2013 but apart from that yeah and what were you talking about yeah i think i saw that presentation I'm intrigued by a colleague in Kingston, Ontario, a chap by the name of Bob Connolly, and he and I came up with this idea that we should submit to Amy, because it was in Canada, the Presentation Skills Workshop, PQ Workshop. It got rejected. Uh, and then we did it again the next year, it got rejected. And we spoke to a lady through St. Emblems and said, you know, because uh, she's a professor, I can't remember her name with respect. Uh, she said, oh, well, there's no point because everyone knows that. And there was this deafening silence amongst the group of us. If everybody knows it, then nobody has taken it on. So it's it's difficult to know how, how these things work. Um, I had a similar experience, Ross. I sent through my powerful presentations resource to Amy to see if they would like to distribute it to their conference presenters. I didn't hear back from them, so I assumed that, um, yeah, that they felt it wasn't necessary. And I I also find it disconcerting when you have to complete the abstract templates for medical education conferences. It's basically structured around the format for a research paper. So I believe that then presenters are therefore inclined to create their presentations in that same format as a paper, not as a presentation. I think, Kate, you're right. It's, It's bizarre that we think that there's only one way to do things and then force people into it. And that's so these educational conferences are sending out um, templates, slide templates saying, please um, use this standard template. It just it's sad. I understand its value of, of getting a degree of uniformity and making things easier to understand. But in that way, it makes it harder for people to learn. Mm. That will come with time too, I'm sure. Okay, so next question. 
For new presenters who are just starting out, do you have a list of three to five essential tips for making good presentations? You need to consider that a presentation is different from what you've done in the past. I strongly advise people to turn off their laptop and sit with a piece of paper and a pen and firstly consider the audience needs of the topic that you have been given. It's not what you want to give to them, but what they want to take away from you. The audience needs, therefore, should be turned into a message, a single sentence message about that topic. Once you have a message, then you need to consider what are the obstructions in the audience to that message. Why does changing to P-cubed approach present problems to the person who would do a standard PowerPoint approach? And those are what are called spark lines, three steps within a talk. And in those three steps, you can then build your storyboard. Once you have the storyboard of the three steps, then illustrate the talk, don't annotate it. Illustration means to add images rather than to add text. And then the fifth thing is practice. Practice and practice. Most of us spend most of our time maximizing what the PowerPoint looks like, not the same amount of time in terms of practice. Practice so that you understand the flow of what you've got and improve that flow by edit and understand that confidence gained in practice will be rewarded hugely in your delivery. So that improves P1, P2 and P3 and overall the P-cubed value of your presentation will be much, much better even from just small improvements in each step. So to sum up, it is important that new presenters plan their message and story before they sit down at the computer. They need to consider their audience's needs of the topic and from that develop a clear message. From the message create spark lines, which are three steps within the talk. Illustrate the talk with images, don't annotate. And finally, practice. Spend as much time practicing as you do creating the PowerPoint. So that concludes the first part of the presentation skills interview. Ross, it has been enlightening to hear how your interest in presentation skills has developed. And for me, it has consolidated my own understanding of the P-cubed approach. Thank you very much, Ross. That was tremendous. Very nice. Thank you. In the second part of the podcast, we'll be talking to Vic Brazel on how to improve the delivery of your presentation.